We're speaking with Bob Maravich in Chicago, Robert Darden in Waco, Texas, and discussing some of the best black gospel music you've never heard. Just so I don't sound uh, even more clueless than I am, Bob Maravich, what's your day job? What's, what's your role up there in Chicago? Well, uh, by day, I'm a grant writer. I write grants for educational institutions here in, in Chicago and in, uh, in Minnesota. Uh, but I have really gone from a full-time fundraising position, very responsible, to doing part-time grant writing because I wanted to spend more time in gospel music. I got an interest in 1984 when I first heard the uh, uh, Cosmopolitan Church of Prayer uh, choir with uh, Father Hayes on a radio mm. broadcast in my college dorm. And that I was always an interest. I was always interested in black music. When my friends were growing up buying Beatles records, I was buying Booker T and the MGs <laughs> and Motown. <laughs> so um, I was always uh, always interested in, in in the black sound. And when I got involved in gospel, it was sort of like, oh, wow, this is like sacred black music. I guess it had never crossed my mind that it would be quite as amazing as it was. And I was hooked from there um, and and stayed involved in gospel because I, I wanted to learn more about it. I sort of felt it was the, at the background or the at the it was sort of the, the foundation of all the music that I was listening to already. And I wanted to learn more about it. And that's where I got my interest. It's great to hear soulmates in conversation because while you're talking, Bob Maravich, I can see Robert Darden right here in the studio with me smiling and nodding. It's as if he's hearing his own biography uh, read out. <laughs> Only from somebody much younger. So, Robert, I don't know about that. Robert, what's your story? How did you get involved in this? My father gets promoted to captain in the Air Force, and he brings home his first hi-fi and three LPs. And one of them's a Perry Como album, and one's a movie themes, and the third is Mahalia's Christmas album. And my parents said at age six that I could not quit playing that particular uh, disc. And the Air Force had integrated before the rest of the country, so my friends on both sides of me were black and were to, we finally left the Air Force after 30 years. And that's what they were playing in their houses. Mom would have the sensational nightingales in and a, a, a big pot of greens, literally. And I would stay and mooch food and listen to the music. It went on forever. And that's how I got hooked. And my first buys were Stax, Volt, Atlantic, uh, Joe Tex. I never did get into that slick Motown stuff, though. Well, I got into Motown because my first little record player at about the age of seven came with about a dozen discs, and they were all Motown. <laughs> And, and I grew up in northwest Indiana. It was very, you know, oh. white community. And I think everyone looked at that and said, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what is all this? But I just loved it because it was – first of all, it was it was like nobody else is listening to this mm -hmm. music and I'm listening to it. Uh, and nobody else knows about it around in my class. Um, but then you, know, you just start to dance to it. You know, just thought this is great. My shows you how ignorant I was. I, by the time we get to uh, – my dad goes to Vietnam and we move to a little town in east Texas to live with my grandmother. And uh, I hear uh, that a group called Steppenwolf is coming to Beaumont to play. And I'm all excited, and I get the kids, uh, somebody to drive us and get down there. And it's a white rock band. And I'm thinking it's like Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters. I'm thinking I'm going to go hear a blues act. That's how ignorant I was. That was my first concert was Steppenwolf. With a lead singer from Germany. Germany. You, you were kind of off the target there, I, I was guess. Off a bl <laughs> nearly blind lead singer from Germany, which That's is true. close. Yeah, 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 he is legally blind. That's right. Well, we're going to make our way into something that might actually have a little bit of a Motown sound. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spring this on you here in a little bit, Robert. But let's, let's get back to Memphis. Now, I'm guessing that these guys are from Memphis. I don't know. The Soulful Sons of Zion. Do, do we know where this particular group is from, Robert or Bob? I don't. 
I haven't a clue. <laughs> so this is a remarkable part of the story, isn't it? That there are amazing performances on these records by people we cannot track down and in, in some cases have just no information on whatsoever. How, how frequent is that with these little uh, 45s, these one-offs? I'll let Bob answer that because he's in, been doing this a lot longer. But I will say here at the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, where we get in the mail a few boxes every week, I don't mind so much not knowing every artist that we open up to see for the first time. But what really scares me is I don't know every label, which means there's a whole new set of stuff out there that we didn't know existed and we're going to have to track down. That's exactly right. And if I'm not mistaken, this particular recording is on the SZ label. Yeah, that's which right. I'm sure, I'm sure that's Sons of Zion. I'm sure it was the group decided, let's put out our own record. Let's call it SZ and, <laughs> and print you know 250 <laughs> copies at the local pressing company and, and sell them. And that they, there might be that one. There might be 10. We, we, you know, that's the amazing thing. And with the Internet auctions, we're finding more and more that none of us knew existed uh, almost to the point of of never being able to know all of the ones that are out there. But th- you have these groups that they may have been local, never had any intention of being professional outside of you know their area, uh, and they made one record. It was it's a stellar performance. Probably w- could be appreciated more now than it was then. Well, let's have a listen. The Soulful Sons of Zion. This is in fact on SZ Records Catalog Zero Zero One, and this track is called "Ain't That Right."
soulful sons of Zion. Ain't that right? Am, am I am I hearing things? It sounds a little like stacks to me. Oh, I can eat that stuff with a spoon. I just love that sound. Uh, yeah, I hear Otis Clay. I hear stacks. Yeah, and, and you almost hear a little bit of that Motown beat in the background, too. Uh, uh, it's probably all of the above. <laughs> but we have absolutely no idea who this lead singer is. We have no clue whatsoever who the Soulful Sons of Zion might be. You know, and th- the funny thing, sad thing about this is, in the had that track gone into a, a little bit higher quality studio where it could have been mixed just a uh, the guitar mixed down a little bit bit the, the drums and bass mixed up a little bit that could have been a hit in 1965 right and and uh it, that's the thing i mean so many of these songs if if played uh on the pop stations in those days would have been every bit as uh popular as as the as the hits um, there was a group, you know, the only thing I could think of, there was a group called the Sons of Zion in, in, in Detroit. But, you know, my my inkling is it wasn't the same group. No. Uh, so, you know, they all had so many similarities in names. There there were probably 10 Sons of Zions around the country, and they decided they were the soulful sons because they probably ran into the Sons of Zion at another <laughs> program and said, uh-oh, <laughs> who's going to change our name? The uh, the Chalice set that was just re-released from the the, the Great Stacks Vault gospel label they actually had a contest to name some of their groups and the winners were just mixed and match of the of a list of about 10 names pilgrim jubilee soulful uh sensational and they, they put together dixie hummingbirds and it became the pilgrim hunting and they just all these wonderful names that were <laughs> mix and match and I, I can't tell them apart and i love it all now, when, when you hear a track like this and you you hear the name soulful sons of zion are they trying to link that to soul music that's becoming very popular as a kind of a gospel turned back into secular music in the 60s? Are they trying to signal what kind of music it is, or or is this just a a tag that gospel groups would use? There's not a whole lot of soulfuls, are there, Bob? No, and I suspect you're right. It probably was really trying to uh, appeal to a more modern, younger crowd, saying we're not the the uh you know the, the we're not your grandmother's quartet we're 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 more hip we're soulful i i i suspect that that's probably what they were trying to do and i think the the mighty clouds of joy who come out about 1960 begin a lot of this stuff in earnest not just with the choreography and the outfits but adding guitar bass and drums early uh when other groups would come to it late and it would sometimes be an awkward fit these this particular group sounds like they perhaps even toured with a band. I think what you do find is that as much as gospel influenced popular music it, it, the boomerang back I think when you would these groups would hear what was popular around the time and they they felt they needed to change to update their style and it, to do that was to adopt the most current sound that was on the radio. Well, let's hear another track from the Soulful Sons of Zion in which the lead singer really gets to stretch out some. This is, I guess you'd call it uh, not the drive, but uh, the, well, what, what's the one that's not the drive? If you're going to play two songs and one of them's a drive song, what do you call the other one? I would say it's more the, uh, the devotional or, or inspirational song. I, I've often called them a gospel ballad, but I don't think the quartets call it that. That's just kind of like their, their devotional song. Well, maybe this one fits into that genre, but we'll we'll talk about it when we get on the other side. Soulful Sons of Zion, this is Lord Save Me. Listen, people, you know I was talking to a friend the other day. He told me, say, listen, Johnny, I've been having so many ups and downs. 
Soulful Sons of Zion, Lord save me, Bob and Robert. You got to take it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just floored by this song. It has everything from ninth chords up and down the neck to a wah wah pedal to somebody wailing in the background with this really. I mean, just talk to me. What's going on with that kind of multiple layered song? I'm just glad there's not a video camera in here because I was really grooving to that. That is as good as it gets in my mind. I, I know Bob's probably a little bit more traditional than I am, but that mixture of soul and, and gospel and the the emotionalism and the the, the beat, I, that's the whole package to me. I Again, in the right hands of the right producer, this was as fully as good, if not better, than anything else that was released from 65 to 68. 
So now let's hear from Bob Maravich. Is that song one that has everything you love most about black gospel music? It, well, it does. I love the the passionate lead. I just when I heard him, I was thinking Wilson Pickett because uh, he just sounded so much like Wilson Pickett. Of course, who came out of the gospel community? Mm-hmm. So um, that's a good example of of uh, this. I would call it sort of a boomerang where you have those soulful leads uh, that. Uh, were done, you know, by Archie Brown Lee and by Silas Steele, and has a long history uh, brought into a modern day, influenced by soul, which was influenced by those early guys. So uh, it's sort of, yeah, it, it shows the the marvelousness of 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 all of those various influences, all in you know about three minutes. It's a remarkable performance. I mean, I probably heard it three or four times prepping for the show, but I hadn't heard the wah-wah guitar before. <laughs> and all of a sudden, oh, I hear it in there. And the chances are that that could have been the same guitarist who was doing Brooke Benton or Clarence Card at the time. It's not bad, actually. There's a lot of crossover. Uh, the the Stax Volt Chalice recordings were done after midnight. After the A-team artist had left, some musicians would hang around. It, who knows who was on that? Memphis has got a lot of talent. And, and, you know, it also worked in the reverse. Um, we found out that there was a very famous uh, pianist in, in Chicago, uh, Geraldine Gay, ha- well, Geraldine Gay Hambrick, who was with the Gay Sisters back in the 50s. And uh, she was often called into to chess records to back uh, a popular group uh, on one of their recordings because she was such a great piano. She could play boogie-woogie. She could play uh, just about anything. That that process only made the chess stuff better got to spend some time with the gays while we were in chicago and uh, a joyful happy bunch of more people i've never met what what a great family they are and they're sort of like uh, the the quintessential story of of a of a family who came uh, you know from uh you know from th- during the great migration settled in chicago joined the church of god in christ and uh and continued to perf- continue to perform uh uh, as a second generation or third generation even uh, in the Church of God in Christ and, and actually pastor a church on the south side. Well, as long as we're talking about Chicago and we're leaving Memphis, let's head north, see how that goes. I want to play a track for you now from the famous Willie Webb Choir. And it's a pretty bold statement to name your choir the famous Willie Webb Choir, but I understand that he, uh, he Willie Webb, really had was able to back that up. He really was famous. Can you talk a little bit about who Willie Webb was? I'll let Bob take this one, although I'm a big fan. This is back in Bob's neighborhood. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Willie Webb was there from the beginning. He was a member of the uh, Young People's Choir of, of Benizer Baptist Church uh, in 1932-33 when uh, gospel choirs first started coming in. Uh, Roberta Martin organized that choir. Uh, and out of that choir, uh, well, Willie Webb was there, uh, Norsalis McKissick, Eugene Smith, James Lawrence, and all of them were um, James and, and Robert Anderson. They were all eventually made into a group called the Roberta Martin Singers. And Willie Webb, uh, in addition to being a singer, was a, was an organist and a really popular organist. And uh, so a lot. So he he was with the Roberta Martin Singers for a while. He had his own group. Uh, he started a, a Southside uh, Community Chorus. But a lot of people remember him for being a just a spectacular organist. And his influence goes on from people like Jesse Dixon and uh, Reverend Dr. Stanley Keeble and others. It's an unbroken apostolic line. This kind of style of organ playing, a very particular Chicago style, defines gospel music to a lot of people. And yes, he is the famous Willie Webb. So let's talk a little bit about that organ, because it certainly did grab me when I heard this track. It sounded almost like some of the big Wurlitzer uh, organ stylings that somebody like Fats Waller might play. But am, am I, what kind of an organ would it be playing, and where would that style have come from? 
Bob, you've seen them. Uh, I'm sure there's some Hammond B3 with the Leslie on occasion, but uh, yeah, oh, there's yeah. some Hammonds. Yeah, in fact, he, he would have been, it, my guess is that he probably used a Hammond on this recording, um, but it was interesting, as I've been doing research on the on the history of gospel music in Chicago, the earliest uh, organist, so Willie Webb, um, a uh, a Kenneth Morris, and some of the uh, individuals who played for First Church of Deliverance Church uh, out of Chicago, had a Wurlitzer kind of a, almost like a, a theater organ style at the beginning. It wasn't until later that they started to adapt this, the, their style to make the instrument almost talk. But early on, when they played the Hammond, it was very much in that style of the uh, the big uh, stadium organ, you know, the big sweeping chords and, and what have you. Uh, that was the way they did it, and that's the way Willie Webb did it, at least originally. And some of them, even uh, an inexperienced ear like me, I can hear a Mildred Falls and know that's her playing. And that's a very distinct part of that Chicago sound, as filtered through somebody who grew up elsewhere. Right, exactly. Yeah, and when Willie Webb, my guess is the Willie, the Willie Webb choir on this record may be that Southside Community Chorus, uh, which if it is, it's probably the only recorded version of that chorus we have. Um, similar to the Thompson Community Choir and the Wooten Choral Ensemble, which were made up of people from various churches uh, that came together uh, to to sing and perform and, and eventually record. Because if you wanted to be a member of a choir at, say, First Church of Deliverance, you had to be a member there. Or if you wanted to be an Ebenezer's choir, you had to be a member. The community chorus allowed people to be a member of that without having to be associated with any particular church so that they could sing together uh, as a group and not be you know, restrained by membership. Well, let's have a listen to Comfort Me. This is a track from the famous Willie Webb Choir. Because you've been my God. 
the famous Willie Webb Choir and Comfort Me. I have some information here that actually his group appeared at Carnegie Hall sometime in the 1950s. You all know about uh, that particular performance he had? You know, I don't know about that particular performance, but I, I do know that the Willie Webb singers were quite famous, and, and it makes sense that they would be there uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, Willie Webb uh, was, was good friends with Mahalia Jackson, and she may have had some uh, influence on him getting there. But also, um, an early member of the Willie Webb singers was Alex Bradford. He actually introduced Alex Bradford to the world, and, uh, and then Alex Bradford went on to record for Apollo Records out of New York, um, after he left Willie Webb, and it could be that Bradford somehow had something to do with that as well. Well, and uh, Mahalia Jackson was at was at Carnegie Hall as well, uh, and and so you know I, I think that well, that was always seen as sort of the premier place to be seen if you were a gospel. If you could get to Carnegie Hall, that was that was pretty impressive. That particular forty five was in kind of rough shape. I guess it was at a forty five or a seventy eight. Do you remember? 45. Was it 45? So let's talk a little bit about the preservation aspect of this just for a minute. Uh, it's a it's a really good transfer of a record that uh, obviously had been uh, greatly loved and played again and again and again. Um, how tough is it to do those kinds of preservation efforts? And can you talk a little bit about just why it's important we get these 45s digitized before they all vanish? Well, part of the issue with the Black Gospel music restoration project here at Baylor University is we needed to have the equipment that could salvage a signal from something that was very degraded, at least on the surface. But one of the fun things about 78s is that the the music is almost visible. The grooves are so deep on the old 78s that no matter how many times they've been played, and we've received some that have almost looked like a, a looking glass, they're so slick from repeated playings, that nobody's needle is perfectly centered. And most of the time, they're biased left or right. So our audio engineers here, one of the things they do is examine that, the actual groove, and they can bias the needle just the opposite way and pick a remarkable signal from something that looks like it's pretty beat up. The 45s are a little more forgiving because it's not they're not as fragile. We have more of those. It's a later technology, and a lot of the 78s were melted down during the war as part of the war effort, while we have so few of those to begin with. The 45s, if there's anything available, even if they're badly warped, we have the technology and the needle to pull a pretty good signal out of it. For you techies out there, Toshiba has a new device that looks like a CD player. And it can take a 45, a 78, or an LP, and you stick it in like a DVD, and it reads it like a barcode with a red laser that runs across it. And you punch a button, and out at the other end spits out a CD with the song, and the song never rotate, the disc never rotates, and out comes a CD. Now, we don't use it because Tony, our, our engineer, our next engineer, actually do a lot of production. We do both an archival copy with all the pops and hisses, for uh, which take an enormous amount of space, and then we do a more compressed one where we clean up just a little bit for listening on the air like we would do with iTunes. When you find these recordings, Bob Maravich, and you see, okay, here's a 45 and it, it is worn smooth, uh, are you pretty confident that you're going to be able to get something out of that? Are you, what, what are you thinking as you look through that pile of records and you see something like that? When I see something like that, I, I, I sort of try to just give it an eyeball to see, can I clean it? Can I actually clean it up so that I can get some semblance of sound um, out of it? And that will determine it. Nowadays, that would have been my my MO maybe 10 years ago. Now, 
if I see something and I know it's of historic significance in gospel or something I haven't seen, I just pick it up anyway if it's not expensive because I think somebody can fix this record if I can't. I have a uh, an acetate of a group called the Strings of Harmony, which is a group uh, that uh, the great uh, Charles Bridges, a mm-hmm. quartet um, trainer, had done. And this it almost dances on the turntable, <laughs> but I refused to. I thought, you know, somebody can, you know, like folks at Baylor can fix this and, and restore it rather than have it just be discarded somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, if I if I, I very I try my own way to just clean it as much as I can and get some sound out of it. And uh, even if it, it's got a skip or something, nowadays it's so hard to find these records. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm satisfied that you know it can be fixed somehow. And let me jump in and say that Bob Maravich of Chicago is one of the world's great collectors of gospel vinyl, has perhaps the largest collection of 45s in the world, and it's at his own expense for many years going to the highways and byways and the nooks and crannies in search of this fast-vanishing musical art form. And without Bob and a handful of other collectors worldwide, we would have nothing. Bob is is, uh, to be commended for all of this work and money and time that he has spent making sure that we can hear music like this. There's not enough Bob Maraviches out there. Well, and I'm grateful to Bob Darden and, and the whole Black Gospel Music Restoration Project because uh, while my collection is largely still on the disc, uh, I know that if, you know, God forbid, if there was ever a flood or something, that could all be ruined and gone. And yet now I, I, I feel rested to know that it's being digitized, preserved, and appreciated so that many generations beyond all of us will be able to uh, listen to, enjoy, and study this music where they might not have had a chance otherwise. This is probably a good time for some reflection from Robert and Bob on why it's important to save this music. A lot of regional groups, a lot of very uh, limited circulation performances of music that obviously speaks to a a great number of folks and uh, resonates very deeply with the both of you. So would the two of you just talk a little bit about why it's so important to preserve this music? Well, from a, a musicologist standpoint... This is the roots of all American music. The gospel music is where our most American popular music comes from. If you want to take it back to the spirituals and work songs, it's a straight apostolic succession right through rap and rock and roll today. Just on a, a, a historical standpoint, that's important. From a cultural standpoint, this is as close as we get to a community that is very rarely ever interviewed. They're not published widely. Newspapers in the South would not even run pictures of African Americans until the 70s in some cases. We have very little documentation. And here we have this window into the soul and the heart of the black community as it is in a religious manifestation. From that standpoint, this is important. And during the course of writing my book, uh, People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music, I would find this song that was hugely influential both in the the Christian and the secular world and interview these people and write about it and then come time to sit and listen to it so I'd have some intelligence about it, find out that this particular song was not available for love or money. It simply did not exist. You couldn't go on eBay. You couldn't buy it in any way. I didn't know all the collectors at the time, and even they, it was difficult for them to send something as fragile as a 78. So I talked to a few collectors at the end of the book, and we came up with the figure that nobody has seemed to have disputed since, that 75% of the black gospel vinyl from the golden age of gospel music, 40s, 50s through late 60s, is still unavailable. 
all the collectors together, like Bob Maravich, may not have 100% of it, but this music is, is irreplaceable. And without it, future generations are going to look at us and say, you're the guys that let this stuff slip away. I don't know where your religion is, but if you're a person of faith, then you're going to say, that's a sin. Yeah, I, I agree. It's such a cultural uh, treasure that uh, I think to to let it go is, is to almost let a piece of American history go. Um, for me, uh, as I've been learning more about the history of Chicago and so focused a lot on Chicago gospel, to me it is it is the uh, the audio version of a history of a people who came here and had to make their way uh, in spite of, of prejudice on, on both sides uh, from the white community and the, the middle upper class black community and in so forged their own expression and out of that came their own cultural institutions and uh, and and the, the music that we have, the recordings, are sort of the the pieces of that treasure that that still exist. Um, for me, it, it's so important that that continues because I I get enjoyment out of it. I get a lot of spiritual uplift from it. I know others would as well. And I think there's always that thrill that you get when you find something uh, that you had never heard before, like a soulful Sons of Zion, and suddenly you come across that recording. You know nothing about it other than you have an inkling it's a gospel quartet and some idea of the period, and then it just blows you away. It's like you find a, a new surprise every time you go on a record hunt. And, and that's what I live for um, is to hear this. And um, I just would hate to see it have you know, disappeared because we would never have known what we lost. Let's stay in Chicago for the next track. And this is a group that I know that Bob Maravich has written a great deal about in his uh, Black Gospel Music blog. It's the Little Lucy Smith Singers. Now, Little Lucy Smith has got quite a heritage and quite a career all her own. Could you talk a little bit about Little Lucy Smith, Bob? Sure. She's the granddaughter of uh, Elder Lucy Smith, who uh, was a female evangelist who started her own church uh, on the south side of Chicago called All Nations Pentecostal, the first female uh, to my knowledge, that uh, that ever broadcast on the radio uh, had a. She was the first to have a church broadcast on the radio. She was a social pioneer in Chicago, uh, very much involved in feeding uh, the hungry, clothing the uh, the the poor, and uh, she had a, a vibrant community of music in her in her church. Uh, unfortunately, only one record exists of that that legacy uh, of All Nations Pentecostal and is actually a very straightforward Jubilee Christmas uh, record from the late 20s, which really doesn't give any sense of what the sound of that church was like. But uh, it was the epicenter in many respects of early gospel uh, because of that Pentecostal sound that came out of there. Well, little Lucy Smith, little Lucy Matthews, uh, who who's in this group, that was her granddaughter. She was very involved in the church's music ministry and in fact wrote a song called He's My Light, which is still recorded today. Um, she started this group, uh, Little Lucy Smith Singers, uh, and uh, among the members of that group were Sarah McKissick, uh, Gladys Beeman Gregory, and Catherine Campbell. Now, Gladys and Little Lucy are still alive, but uh, the other two have passed on. Sarah McKissick just died a couple of years ago. But they were very popular in Chicago uh, in the 50s uh, as uh, kind of innovators in a way in, in gospel music because they sang gospel, but it was it had a kind of a pop influence to it. Yeah, the track we're going to hear, when I first listened to it, I thought, that's a stroll. That's in 12-8. That's, uh, you know, I, I, I could almost see that uh, being played at a, in the gym and folks doing the stroll. Yeah, it, that was the thing is they, they, were, they were innovators uh, and, and very popular and, and Lucy Smith played organ for the Roberta Martin Singers and uh, uh, just uh, 
on her own sort of uh, iconic personality, she ended up donating her uh, personal possessions to uh, the Chicago Public Library. And so historians and researchers can go there and see old programs and different items from all nations Pentecostal, as well as her own uh, personal career. And the track we're going to hear is Somebody Bigger Than You and I, which is a track that's been covered by the Clara Ward singers. Andy Griffith did a version. Elvis did a version. What do we know about this song? Well, I'm still looking for the Leonard Nimoy version. I know it's out there. I've just got to sooner or later find that. I love the the fact that it sounds like some of those uh, early girl groups, but with this nice throat, throaty dark singer on top of all that, and, of course, the great Lucy Smith on organ. And that's about all I know. And I think those were it was a, a, a composition, maybe a Tin Pan Alley kind of white composition that was made into a gospel song. You know, I think it was like he and some of those others that was really they were really popular right after the war as as sort of uh, devotional or or, uh, or religious songs. Well, this is what we're going to hear now. Somebody bigger than you and I, the Little Lucy Smith singers. Little Lucy Smith singers, somebody bigger than you and I. And a real pop close there. It sounds almost like a girl group, the Shirelles or something like that, uh, bringing out that nice little smooth pop thing at the end. That's what I hear, too. While we were listening, that's not the, the gospel era that grabs me the most, but I appreciate the fact that here's this artist who continued and continues to have this amazing career that enables young artists to tap into the, the collective knowledge and wisdom that of gospel music that goes back to 
Mahalia Jackson and Thomas Dorsey. Yeah, and it's uh, Little Lucy Smith. I mean, even though the group only made about four discs for the uh, the state's label here out of Chicago, um, they were much more popular in their day. They were one of those groups that you know, we talk about preserving gospel music recordings. It's also about not forgetting some of those pioneers who who can easily be lost if it weren't for preserving their music, like Little Lucy Smith, uh, who was you know more popular than the recordings would suggest um, in Chicago. A group uh, there's a gentleman named uh, Singing Sammy Lewis who uh, only made a few. Well, he made a few recordings over the years, but they weren't uh, you know he was never a big national name, and yet in Chicago he was he was adored. Uh, and a big influence, and uh, people like Reverend Dr. Stanley Keeble played on his recordings. So um, I think when w- if we lose those recordings, we lose the remembrance of some of these pioneers who had their own niche in the music, maybe not as big as Mahalia Jackson or Thomas Dorsey or the Dixie Hummingbirds, but nevertheless had their own niche and in their day were, were quite popular. Well, as I was going through these songs, getting ready for today's recording session, I was struck by some of the regional variations that were very surprising to me. For example, the Gospel Soul Seekers of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Was there a big uh, gospel community and gospel tradition in Milwaukee? Yeah, there's, there's yeah. gospel, yeah. Yes, there is. As a matter of fact, uh, it, it, and still continues. In fact, about three years ago, the quartet that won the Gospel Music Workshop of America Quartet's division, like next big quartet, was from Milwaukee. And actually, I believe that either their manager or a family member was a member of the, the Gospel Soul Seekers of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So there's that, that lineage. But yes, it's, it's very popular uh, in Milwaukee, certainly today, and was back then as well. And there's at least two other Soul Seekers groups out there that I'm aware of. That's true. That's true. Um, and, and there was an, a label uh, in Wisconsin called KUKA, C-U-C-A, that recorded some uh, gospel music from, from Milwaukee, as they did polkas and all kinds of other music, too. But they had a little bit of uh, gospel, and they had a, a couple of uh, other labels. Hummingbird came out of uh, the Milwaukee area, and um, I want to say uh, there was KUKA uh, Psalms, P-S-A-L-M-S, was also a, a subsidiary or an imprint of KUKA that did a gospel from uh, from Chicago, but also from Milwaukee. So when you get into something like a Milwaukee black gospel group, are you going to be hearing more of those ethnic variations, different kinds of uh, layers from the different kinds of immigrants who are there? I don't guess I'm asking if you're going to hear a polka inside black gospel music, <laughs> but but, but uh, the track that I've got queued up to play here in a minute really does sound recognizably different in terms of its uh, instrumentation, in terms of some of the way the music feels. I, I hear it in the Memphis groups. I hear it in the Chicago groups. I, I haven't heard enough Milwaukee groups like Bob has to comment. I started getting interested a couple of years ago in Cleveland to see if there was a Cleveland sound because Cleveland has such a rich gospel tradition. I guess my ears aren't tuned enough. I, I don't hear it to the degree that I hear it in this song. What about you, Bob? Is there a Milwaukee gospel sound? You know, I, I I have not picked up on it myself. I know there's some influence from Chicago just because of the proximity, uh, and 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 but that's more from today. Uh, there's a, a more of a Chicago sound in Milwaukee music because of the the interchangeability of the musicians went at today. Back then, you know, if I heard that and, and somebody said it's the gospel soul seekers, but tell me where they're from, I would have said somewhere in down south. And again, so many of the artists. Uh, through much of the golden age, either they come from the South or they came from the South some years ago and carried that with them. And not just the, 
the Dixie Hummingbird or the others. It's a, a continual migration. People talk about it in the past tense, but that has that continued to this. Now, they always sing about going back south when they retire, but there's still a migration moving north in part because of the, the music and the opportunities. One other thing on that, I, I would say that if, um, if you were to ask the artists, they would probably say a lot of the influence comes from the traveling quartet. So where you, what, what you might find is that they picked up a little bit on the Dixie Hummingbirds because they came to town or the Sensational Nightingales or the Blind Boys or they traveled and they were on programs with the Fairfield Four and what have you. And I think... And this really deserves a greater study because the, the, the regional influences oftentimes does not get as much of attention as, that sh- as it should. But I'll bet in some instances they are just simply influenced by their their kinfolk uh, on the gospel quartet circuit and they're picking up from each other, not necessarily from the uh, region. Although, you know, it also can be said that those who came from the, the uh, Tidewater area of Virginia or the Jefferson County, Alabama, had their own distinctive sounds and Maybe it got got blended over the years. I agree. Well, we'll put it to the folks in the audience. Here's the Milwaukee, Wisconsin Gospel Soul Seekers, Smoothing Out the Rough Way. Smoothing out the rough way, the gospel soul seekers of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with some really interesting stuff going on in there. Sometimes it sounds almost a little country western or rockabilly. And what's going on with that falsetto way up top? Bob, talk about uh, how falsetto becomes such a, a, a dominant. Some people will talk about Claude Jeter and the silver tones, and some people will talk about why this and why the other. Why do you think? falsetto you know, became such a big deal. I, I think that is another piece that came out of the Pentecostal church. I think uh, 
A part of it had to do with uh, just getting across that emotion, that, that uh, unbelievable emotion that you would feel in a church service. Uh, but I think, yeah, when, when Claude Jeter started to do falsetto, everyone wanted to figure out how to get into that. And then also, you know, by the time this record was made in 1961 or so, you had the influence of doo-wop and all of those great uh, high singers. And uh, so I, I think quartets wanted to make sure that they incorporated that sound into their own because they knew the more that they stayed relevant, the more they would they would do well. So you almost had an influence of doo-wop and uh, the Swan Silvertones, Claude Jeter sound in there as well um, to uh, sort of heighten the intensity, if you will. Well, my personal favorite still the stylistics and Russell Tompkins Jr., but that's way later. Uh, that I, One of my favorite discs that uh, Bob has found that we have here at the collection is a Little Richard gospel album, and one of the songs on it, he is doing an uncanny impersonation of Marion Williams with this 30-second falsetto opening that I'd like to play someday. It's just scary, all the things Little Richard could do, <laughs> that he could do vocally that we don't even realize now. And you bring up a good point, Robert, that the idea of uh, of Marion Williams now in the, in the on the female side, you found a lot of uh, singers who could do the high who's, uh, you might call it, of Marion Williams, would start to do that in choirs and uh, in the 60s, hearing her sing. And of course, yeah, I mean, uh, Marianne Williams has influenced so many pop artists uh, just from her singing those high notes and maybe a little bit of influence on the, the male quartet side as well. Oh, yeah. To find out how you can help with the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, visit the project's website at baylor.edu forward slash lib forward slash gospel.